Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Eustace Fernandez on the fact and fiction about the vaping craze. Vaping craze or vaping crazy? Um, yeah, and you know, the, I don't know, is that a gerund? You know, you take a verb and you put an ing on it, it makes it a noun. I think that's a gerund, but how can you make a gerund out of a word that didn't even exist when we were kids? I was going to say, <laughs> 10 years ago, if you said someone was vaping, I'm not sure anybody would know what you mean. Maybe mm. some disappearing? Or no, I, I, I've, I've heard of, you know, vapor lock, but I think that's in a gas tank when you fill it up too much with gas. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's vapor lock going on in some people's heads with this vaping stuff, and we're going to find out from our expert. But before we bring on the expert, we'll show how little we really know by doing a summary of some data that we dredged up from Google. Google and other search engines. Yeah, I you know one of the things that everybody now has seen probably news articles or television uh, television segments on the whole vaping situation but we wanted to delve into kind of what is it when did it start and some of the statistics. So for for people who are are as confused as us in in this topic, uh, vaping is effectively an e-cigarette. It's made up of a liquid, which usually contains nicotine, an atomizer that turns that liquid into a vapor, and a battery that allows it to, to heat up, and then the person inhales it. So are these the people out there who look like they're sucking on laser pointers? <laughs> I think that is probably it. If there's a laser coming out the other end, it might be a laser pointer. Uh, if there's, if I, I remember smoke, the first time I saw these. them, I was like, what in the world is going on? And they produce such an incredibly large cloud of smoke. I was looking it up, actually, and one of the things that they use uh, commonly in this is propylene glycol. And I was looking up propylene glycol because it's, it's an additive in some foodstuffs, but they use it to produce the fake smoke out of little choo-choo trains and everything. Are you serious? So it's the same vaporizing uh, technology that we've used for Christmas decorations for decades. That is But now they wild. put a little nicotine in it and, and people smoke it. And we're going to talk about what that means when we get our expert online here. So uh, these e-cigarettes... Uh, why? Why Why are they so popular now, Andrew? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that I came across was all of the taxes on tobacco products increase the cost of the tobacco products. And so the, as tobacco is getting more expensive, more people want to quit or look for alternatives. And this uh, is one of the alternatives that they found. Is it cheaper? Um, I think in some situations it's cheaper because they have a higher level of nicotine in there than in some smoking products. You know, different cigarettes have different concentrations than, you know, cigars or, or smokeless tobacco. But that was one of the things is the cost. And then also the convenience, because so many places, like even where we're recording here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, wasn't too long ago they put a smoking ban on restaurants. Sure. And uh, a lot of places, you know, there's signs you can't smoke within so many feet of the door by ordinance. And so I think a lot of people found this as a way to continue smoking inside. And uh, So people are using, <coughs> using these inside now? I, I think they are. There's a lot of places that are trying to make that illegal. But I think that's one of the perceived benefits because it doesn't have the same odor uh, as tobacco. So that's one of the things that I've seen a lot in, in my practice is that, especially adolescents using these, um, they don't smell like they're smokers. Uh, and so it's easier to be deceptive and still use the product. Can people just put these in their pockets between inhalations? I think so. They might blow up. I've I've seen a couple <laughs> a couple of the news articles I came over where the battery's exploding. So maybe uh, pocket it at your own risk. But I do believe that that's exactly it. So the battery retains its charge, and so you don't have to. You know, with a, a cigarette, you'd have to probably smoke the whole thing or put it out or throw it out or something. Right. So there, there's less loss, <laughs> yeah, less loss actually, aversion. That's a, that's a good so when you were mentioning propylene glycol, I'm having a flashback. As a dermatologist, propylene glycol is used in the vehicles of many, many skincare products. Because it's a moisturizer, isn't it? Yes. So, um, and I suppose it increases, it might increase surface area. And since smoke is made up of particulate matter, and then you have more surface area, you get bigger smoke 
plumes. It's one of the things that I always try and get the hand sanitizer yes. with the moisturizer in it. Yes. And I think this is one of the, the moisturizers that they use. It, it is. And you've never tried to light it on fire or I, aerosolize I, it. I have not, but don't give me ideas, Tom. Don't tell my kids because they like to, to try different things with campfires. So now on this recommendations that you found here, and in fact, what website did you find this information on, Andrew? This is actually, uh, for physicians, a lot of us use a site called UpToDate, oh, which is okay. kind of a, yes. it's an organization that puts together a lot of the most uh, recent scholarly articles to let us know kind of what Up the standard of care is. Date. So here it says that recreational use of e-cigarettes should not be initiated good. It says non-smokers should not use e-cigarettes. It almost sounds like a non-sequitur. Can you unpackage that for me? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just a dermatologist. I don't understand Well, this. I mean, to, to spill it out, I think the biggest thing is the perceived safety amongst a lot of people using them. A lot of people feel like they're safe because they're not cigarettes. And so that's one of the things that as physicians, we want to encourage people to not start smoking because it's not a cigarette. It's not, the safety is not proven. I know we're going to get into that a little bit with Eustace, but I think there's some very real risks, which is the reason it's been on the news so much lately. So in other words, they're not recommending somebody use vaping who has never used regular tobacco products. Correct, correct. I think one of the things that I found is most of the people using these are people who are current smokers or former smokers. And so because it's primarily a way to get nicotine into your body, those are the people who are really shopping for nicotine. And the FDA says that what last year we had an 80% increase in the use of these products. 80% in one year. So that is, that's a big, big increase. Boy, I bet people who invested in that are happy. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. But I, I think one of the things that we're starting to see now is the regulation because of this huge increase, especially in regard to adolescence. And it says here that according to the Centers for Disease Control, what nearly 38% of high schoolers and even 13% or one in eight middle schoolers have tried vaping at least once, and they think those are underreported. Yeah, well, and I mean, they've got to be almost self-reported, right? Well, they do. And and so a lot of of times the kids are obviously not going to fess up to that. Um, But one of the things that makes e-cigarettes so much different is that a lot of them, like you said, they look like a laser pointer or flash drive or something. So it's not, <laughs> it's not obvious to, to people observing you or if you have one in your backpack or something, unless people know what they're looking for, it could just look like a computer, a computer now, accessory. I found this fact that you dredged up from the, the data bank that compared to conventional cigarette users, those who use e-cigarettes are younger more educated and have higher incomes. So it almost sounds like this is going after a demographic that tobacco companies are not heavily into. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, to paint with a wide brush, the, the people who continue to smoke cigarettes are kind of the blue-collar um, working folks. A lot of times it's rare that you see white-collar job people smoking cigarettes. But the the people using the electronic cigarettes, it is, as you point out, it's a different demographic, which I think has caught a lot of people by surprise, especially one of the things that I was surprised by was there doesn't seem to be a huge gender difference. Right. Where traditional cigarettes, the, the statistic I found was that about 17% of men are smokers currently and about 13.5% of women are smokers. So usually it, it sways to the men a lot more, but... I think a lot of times this one is kind of neutral on whether whether you're a boy or a girl. And it sounds like that um, users of the e-cigarettes, is vaping and using an e-cigarette mean the same thing? I don't know. And that's one of the things I want to ask Dr. Fernandez because I I think people might use them colloquially, but I think they might mean different things. Because when I think electronic cigarette, I think something that looks like a cigarette lights up on the end but with a fake light, just like those fake fireplaces, which kind of glow with light, but there's no <laughs> fire in there. I'm wondering, is that similar or is it different? We're, we're going to find out. So, But what surprised me is that those who vape are much less likely to do it daily than those who use tobacco. Right. You know, people, it's, I, I think there's an idea of a social smoker, someone who mm-hmm. is not an everyday smoker, but they might smoke on the weekends or, or something to that effect. Um, but there's a lot more people using the e-cigarettes who, who use them in that way. They're not daily users. Yeah. In fact, the data you found uh, on UpToDate says only 12 to 14% of smokers who try e-cigarettes progress to daily use. 
Yeah, so that would that would suggest low. yeah that most most people are not using them on a daily basis, and that most users most vapors are already smoking conventional cigarettes. Yeah, so it might be just a placeholder. I could envision if if they were times when they can't smoke cigarettes that maybe they would turn to this instead. And then can you explain there are there have been or are four generations of products? Yeah, that was one of the things that I found because I was trying to look up kind of when did this all start? I mean, it came upon us and it, it seems as though the first generation of products came about in about somewhere between 2003 and 2008. They became really popular. And these are described as what, as what you kind of described, Tom. They look like a cigarette. They even light up on the end. Um, but then they're not really reusable. You just throw them out when, when they're done. Uh, it has seemed that they have gone through actually four generations of products now. And so the, the fourth generation of product, which is popular now, is the pod product, where you'll have a rechargeable fixed device, and then you'll replace pods uh, as you run out which of the liquid. Which contain nicotine and flavorings. We have some background. We'll get the real information Soon, but I first. really want to know about the safety because you keep reading about all of these lung diseases. I heard a thousand people have this lung disease uh, that just came out this year. Basically, maybe we should talk talk to a lung doctor. I'm excited. So, but first, our patented trivia question of the week, which will have to do with, not surprisingly, our topic. So, in November of 1492, one of the travelers on the Santa Maria with none other than Christopher Colon, who we know as Christopher Columbus, named Rodrigo de Jerez, did something in Cuba that no other European had ever done. What did he do in Cuba that has had an enormous impact on the practice of medicine for over 500 years? What happens in Cuba does not stay in it Cuba. It did not stay in Cuba. No. So... We'll be back after the break with our special guest, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to the second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor, now with our special guest, Dr. Eustace Fernandez. Eustace is a friend of Andrew and mine who graduated from the Ohio State University School of Medicine in Columbus. He stayed on to do his residency there in uh, internal medicine, and then he moved east a little bit to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center to specialize in the care of patients with lung diseases and those who are critically ill. Think about those who might be in an intensive care unit. He practices critical care and uh, lung medicine at Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he is also uh, a husband and father of five children. Eustace Fernandez, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me, guys. Always good to see you. Yep, and this is actually a repeat performance. He was actually one of the first guests we ever had on Dr. Doctor. So it's good to get him on here when he can be heard across the EWTN yeah, Global not, Catholic not Radio Network. Yeah, not many people get to come back twice. So I that's know. A, I, that's feel, a good thing. I feel very blessed. And <laughs> Affirmed, and my, yes. My, my how you've grown. Validated. One more my and you get grown. the mug. Right. <laughs> right. When do we right. get the mug? Is there a mug? Actually, yeah, we should I make saw mugs. a guy with a Dr. Doctor t-shirt yesterday. Oh, and I nice. thought, well, geez, where wow. did that come from? <laughs> we, we have arrived. I didn't get any swag. <laughs> Neither did we. But We're going to have to hook him up with one of those T-shirts. Yes, right. yes, we are. So anyway, Eustace, so vaping, is that the same as an e-cigarette? So we can talk about it in the broader sense of smoking cessation products or strategies. Um, they all broadly fall under this category of, of smoking cessation strategies, and this can include any number of things. So vaping and e-cigarettes are probably uh, subsets of one another. So e-cigarettes uh, fall into a number of generations of sure. products, like Andrew described, and the fourth generation product, which is sort of the pod mod device mm -hmm. uh, that Andrew described, is probably the lion's share of e-cigarettes now. Most of the older generations have uh, been sort of rendered obsolete. They aren't as sleek. They aren't as user-friendly. They aren't as um, culturally appealing to whom, whomever they're marketed to. So the fourth generation, um, and in particular the brand Juul, which is J-U-U-L, is uh, probably 50% of the market wow. in terms of the entire e-cigarette product market and represents somewhere between a 38 to $48 billion 
billion dollar industry. Wow. You know, and but also within those smoking cessation categories, you have things like nic- simple nicotine replacement, um, whether it's in patch or gum form, which uh, is nicotine, but it's without all of the various additives, flavors, etc. Because yeah, uh, those are prescription, right? Those can be prescription. Um, you can also buy them over the counter. Um, and then there are other prescription medications which are actually di- directed at the brain chemistry uh, behind nicotine addiction. Um, and those are, are things like Zyban and Chantix, which, ah. are, which are pills directed at substituting um, whatever the brain is craving. So that's a, a different way that does not rely on nicotine per se. And then there are these things that people talk about, like uh, simply behavioral therapy, which has some efficacy to it. And then there are things that are out there that are not studied, such as hypnosis and acupuncture and and things like that. So So vaping is really in the category of smoking cessation um, therapies. Well, in a sense, yes. In a sense, no. So, so if you look at it, there's a randomized trial that was done in England where you took people and you gave them nicotine replacement and you, or you gave them uh, some form of electronic cigarette. And it appeared that the electronic cigarette was superior in terms of getting people to stop smoking. But at a year out, 80% of patients who were given uh, an e-cigarette were still using some form of nicotine replacement in the form of an e-cigarette as opposed to traditional nicotine replacement where that number was really low. It was under 10%. People don't wear patches forever. Right. But they will continue to use an e-cigarette for a long period of time. Now, the FDA um, has said most recently that there is not sufficient evidence to support it being marketed as a smoking cessation um, product. So though in the cultural sense, it's described as something to help people stop smoking. And, you know, the general rationale for people who use it as adults who are smokers is, oh, I'm going to, it's going to help me stop smoking. The data to support that premise is not actually there. In fact, in a sort of interesting um, anecdotal story, um, there is, uh, there was recently an article published on uh, NBC News's website in, I think it was September 15th or so, um, where they describe a category of people who were vapors who have started smoking combustible cigarettes, so traditional cigarettes, to relieve their nicotine addiction. Oh, wow. Because the nicotine is easier to get in the vaping products. Right. And they're, they're using traditional smoking as a way to de-escalate their vaping habits. So, so it's, it's really an odd uh, mental play there um, to, to make the argument that it is a effective and safe way of stopping smoking. Yeah, that sounds like fake news. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in my clinical practice, what I see is, is people who, who are usually doing a lot of both. They, well, they, in which way did they start? They, for the most part, started as smokers, okay. um, embraced vaping to try and de-escalate their smoking, haven't been able to uh, stop smoking altogether, may have reduced the amount of traditional cigarette they're smoking, but continue to vape. When, when somebody comes in and says, Doc, I'm, I'm not smoking anymore, I'm using any cigarette, is that something to applaud? That's a really difficult question because smoking is a very emotionally sensitive issue to patients. Patients have a lot of shame over it. They know intuitively they're doing something bad to their body. They know that over the years it's become socially extremely undesirable to be a smoker. So in a sense, um, you want to be very careful um, with that. So you want to applaud them on one hand. But at the same time, if you're if you're really seeking to try and be their doctor, you have to say, well, okay, so... So you've, you've passed through this major hurdle. Let's talk about the next one. Right. And, and at what point are we going to put everything aside that may be harmful to your lung health or to your health in general and, and get you better? And so that's a delicate conversation. And so really people, because I think because of the amount of shame and cultural stigma associated with smoking, it's really important to congratulate them on stopping smoking and then and then move into the discussion about what product they're using, when they're using it, why they're using it. Uh, let me back up to, uh, to see if I can figure out something here. You said that in that study 
in the United Kingdom, in England, 80% of people using vaping a year later to try to quit smoking were still using vaping, but less than 10% of those who use the patches or, or other nicotine replacement. Were they tapering off of one but not the other? In other words, were the vapors always using the same amount of nicotine, but were the patch replacement users tapering off the amount of nicotine gradually down? Yeah, and it's it's really hard be, to say what people are actually doing when they're vaping because um, many of the devices have the ability to turn up or turn down the amount oh, okay. of nicotine over time. So you, in theory, you could. Okay. But in one um, in one pouch um, from a jewel, you can get as much nicotine as a pack of cigarettes. Um, so it's it, it, you can get this incredible dose of nicotine, and and it relies on the patient being willing to self-regulate. Ah. So the idea, or which I think is is probably false, of it being a a safe way of nicotine replacement, uh, disincentivizes the patient from ever saying, well, maybe I should turn this down, or why am I still right. doing this? Well, and it makes me wonder about the folks who are non-daily users. Mm -hmm. These guys are not going through uh, daily withdrawal symptoms because they're not using nicotine, but they use it once in a while. They're using it because they want the nicotine, mm -hmm. right? So they probably, there'd be no incentive to turn it down there. Their goal is the nicotine. So somebody who quits cigarettes and goes to vaping, what have they given up? So there are, are probably 700 toxins in a traditional combustible cigarette. So you've given up all of that stuff that's non-nicotine, in a sense. And is that the cancer-causing part? We don't know, actually. We don't know what the cancer-causing element is in combustible cigarettes. It could be any of those wow. things. Um, but, but it's probably not nicotine, okay. but it's some of those other things. Um, and and it's, that, it's that deadly cocktail that we, that we know will cause lung cancer uh, among other diseases. So, so we think about lung cancer a lot, but, but there is not an organ system in the human body that's not affected by combustible tobacco smoke. So, so you know, from the skin uh, yes, to, see it. Oh, yeah. to the voice, to, to reproductive health, every little bit of us is, is affected by, by um, combustible or traditional tobacco smoke. Um, now, the, the potential for harm from uh, e-cigarettes or vaping is unclear. So if you look at it, you know that, that if you're somebody standing next to somebody vaping, you, you receive um, some degree of secondhand nicotine right. exposure. You, you get some of whatever the other combustibles are. So Andrew described mm -hmm. um, some of the things. That, they're described by some people as thickeners yes. that help um, – and and for and and there's some controversy about whether or not those are the things that actually cause the problems within the lung that we are seeing an uptick in. Okay. Mm. So, um, for example, um, some of the THC or cannabinoid-based uh, um, vaping products contain vitamin E acetate, which can be a toxin to the yes. lung. So, is that all of them? No, that's not all of them. Uh, is that the agent? It's very controversial. What is it about nicotine that makes people want it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so our it's our brain that makes people want it. So, so there is a chemical that the body makes. It's called dopamine. Dopamine binds to the these special receptors in the brain, and those receptors in the brain, when they're activated, they control the sensation, the feeling we get of euphoria, of pleasure, of happiness. Um, they relieve anxiety. And, and those are things that, that people naturally want. So they, they want to be free from anxiety. They want to be happy. They want a feeling of euphoria. They want a little bit more energy, whatever. So, so nicotine, when we ingest it, binds to those receptors. It stimulates those receptors. And when it stimulates those receptors, what do we want? We want more of that. And over time, we saturate all of those receptors with dopamine. So what does the brain do? It makes more of them. The body makes more of them. And how do we saturate them? We smoke more. And so that's why you see someone who said, you know, I started out as a half pack per day smoker. And then by the time I was done, uh, I, I was at two packs per day. It's, it's the biology of the brain that drives it. Uh, so that is, that's what makes us crave nicotine. 
So if that's the case, how can, how can so many people who vape not do it daily? Aren't they going through this saturating the dopamine receptors and then wanting more of an effect? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. You know, there um, are anecdotal reports of people doing uh, vaping right before they go to compete in an athletic event. So they get that wow. initial rush of nicotine, they get that initial stimulation, and, and they might be able to uh, be more aggressive when they're wrestling or might be able to sprint faster in a track meet or might be able to um, tackle uh, a little bit harder when they're on the football field. So, so there's that. Um, there are people who are, who are um, sort of the dumb college kids who 25 years ago would have been people who only smoke when they're drinking alcohol at the bar. Yes. Uh, now maybe they just vape when they're at the bar. So, so there are different social situations where where it might be happening. That sounds like um, Star Wars to and me. Then, <laughs> yeah, the cantina scene, right? Yes. But you know, the the other thing too is that is that you know God made everybody's brain a little bit differently. So if you look at if you look at studies of of people who who are schizophrenic, for example, a very high percentage. I think nearly eighty percent of them are are smokers wow. or have been because there's something about the brain of a schizophrenic that needs more dopamine to maintain some semblance of function. So the addiction pathway you just described sounds like the same one we've talked about on this show with marijuana, with opioids, with pornography, and internet screen addiction. Yeah, yeah, and and you know there are studies. I mean, there are older studies, but but they suggest that the way in which nicotine binds the dopamine receptors in the brain makes it an incredibly difficult. Um, attachment or addiction to rid oneself of. So so most patients that I see understand that tobacco smoke or or inhaling anything other than our good Midwestern air is bad <laughs> for them. They understand that, but they just can't. They they can't stop. And and the addiction um, is harder to break in in some studies than than heroin, yes. cocaine, uh, or other things we might think of. Wow. And and you had mentioned, Eustace, the THC in the vaping products. You know, there's places where marijuana is legal, places where it's not legal. Is the THC something that is sold to be vaped, or is this something that is kind of on the black market being added in? Do we well, know much about I, that? I, we don't know um, too much about it. I, I honestly um, believe that if you go to a vaping website like Juul's website, they will not sell cannabinoid-based um, thing. So I, th I think it is, it is more of an underground thing. But, but keep in mind that not every vaping-related illness, and, and we're at, depending on what you read, somewhere be between 800 and 1,000 in the last year wow. of vaping-related illnesses, and, and depending on what you read, somewhere between uh, 9 and 19 deaths related to vaping, depending on what you read, um, are not exclusively related to these cannabinoid-based vaping products. Wow. So, so originally the, the thought was, well, that's the problem, but, but the data just doesn't support that. What we know doesn't support that premise. I think this would be a good time to take our break and get into some of these uh, vaping-related illnesses. We'll be back with more on vaping with Dr. Eustace Fernandez here from the studios of Redeemer Radio on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and today discussing vaping with Dr. Eustace Fernandez, a pulmonologist from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Eustace, the Chief Scientific Officer of the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association, Carl Phillips, told the White House that the net health effects of nicotine are very close to zero. Would you agree with that? How would you respond? Well, um, I wouldn't agree with that because the a lot of it has to do with the vehicle, right? So very few of the ways that nicotine enters the body are just pure nicotine, right? It's It's through traditional tobacco smoke, it's through vaping, etc. Um, now, if you are talking about something like nicotine patches, etc., they still have uh, potentially deleterious effects depending on the individual. Okay, probably still raise blood pressure. And raises stuff. blood pressure. It can cause specifically, it can cause spasm in the coronary arteries, which are the blood vessels that supply the heart. Okay, they uh, people who have. Um, who have had uh, cerebral aneurysms, it can cause spasm in the arteries that supply the brain. So, so depending on the individual, um, that statement might be true or false. 
So is this eliminating the addictive quality of it? I mean, isn't that a deleterious health effect? Of course. Yeah, it's a it's a deleterious health effect, and it is a um, it's a psychological and a spiritual question as well. Like, what do we choose? What do we want to be addicted to? In this world, really nothing, right? As Catholic Christians, we're supposed to say nothing. But these things, when we talk about the negative or the net negative health benefits or effects, you have to define what you consider to be a benefit or an ill consequence. Um, I suspect that this individual is talking about an economic burden or some other signal that's measurable. But I don't know if it is uh, talking specifically about specific subgroups of patients like those with cardiovascular disease, those with uncontrolled hypertension. He says health effects. Right. Right. And I think that that's, it just dep- it depends on what you define as Seems like being, it's misleading. It, it, yeah. In, in my opinion, it is. So you broached the subject, so let's ask it now. From your understanding of Catholic teaching, is there anything that our church says about smoking? Well, we, of course, are made in the image and likeness of God. We get our dignity from the fact that we are made in that image and likeness of God. Our responsibility is to be good stewards of that human body. Right, so things that um, incrementally uh, destroy the body have to be rejected, and things that lead us down this pathway, um, whether it's vaping that le- is a gateway pathway to tobacco smoke or an addiction uh, or an addictive behavior. So you would say it is a gateway. I think that there is reasonable evidence that it is a drug that is used in exponential amounts and that it probably is a gateway drug to something like regu- conventional tobacco smoke, marijuana use, etc. So it's a, it's a small um, leap to think, okay, well, I'm vaping and I'm using, you know, banana berry vape. And then somebody <laughs> says, hey, you're already vaping. Why don't you try this, uh, this pod that has a cannabinoid? And then you try that and you say, well, okay, I feel less anxious. I feel less stressed. Maybe uh, somebody else says, well, why don't you try smoking marijuana? It's legal in this particular state and so on. And, and so I think there, the argument could be made and, and the rationale is there. Whether the data is there is not clear to me, um, but, but I'm, I'm speaking as someone who, who is primarily a clinician. Right. Um, and if you look at the epidemiologic data, you look uh, between – 2017 and 2019, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I I believe in October of this year, um, you had a poll of 12th graders. And in 2017, about 9% of them had uh, tried vaping. Now, um, that number is as high as one in four, according to this particular study. And and so, so... the just the exponential increase suggests that uh, this is something that is here to stay, particularly when you see similar numbers in this particular epidemiologic study that looked at eighth through twelfth graders, and you see the same trends in eighth grade. So, so yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point about the adolescence. I've I've got patients that I see that you know parents are kind of besides themselves trying to figure out how to terminate this behavior, and we're even talking about smoking cessation pathways for middle schoolers and high schoolers that are using these vaping products at school sometimes. They get them from their friends. You know, what would you, what kind of advice would you have for parents who might be struggling with this or things to to tell adolescents? Well, when I see patients in the clinic who are struggling with any form of addiction, you have to get to the heart of it. You have to get to the root of why, you know? Sometimes... Um, patients return to smoking or continue to smoke because they've lost someone very close to them. Maybe they have a, a personal stress like a, a divorce uh, or a child that's, um, that's ill, and, and they return or continue to smoke because of that. And, and I tell my patients routinely, I could cover you from head to toe with nicotine patches, but unless I go back to and identify that root cause, how am I supposed to get them to stop? So we have to identify that root cause and they have to reach some degree of self-determination about it. So, so with adolescents, it's a little more difficult because the, the big deal is, is peer pressure and what people are doing uh, with social media and, and who's doing it, who's not doing it. And, and the campaign um, 
among many of the uh, vaping companies, although you know they will say we are not marketing to children, etc. Um, the design, for example, of the Juul product is is very techy. It looks like something that a young person might hold. It looks kind of space aged, and it has like a certain amount of attraction just by its you know by its very appearance and sleek. Um, ability to deliver a product. And if you read um, the marketing that went behind creation of the product, mm-hmm. and I, I think this was described in in a September issue of Time magazine, um, it is it is um, exquisitely marketed to a generation of people who have never thought about smoking. So in other words, this recent editorial in our local newspaper said that most people who vape are doing it to end their use of conventional cigarettes. Clearly not true for the youth. Is it even true for adults? I think that the intention, honestly, is to stop um, for the adults. I mean, because most of them are always are already nicotine addicted. So, so but so it doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well, and it's it's not um, it's not particularly helpful, right? An editorial in the Los Angeles Times on October 1st of this year has this expose that the FDA tried to ban flavors in vaping because they saw it as targeting young people. And it points out how many officials in the Obama administration decided not to ban the flavors because, quote, a cost-benefit analysis suggested the economic burden on vape shops appeared to outweigh potential health benefits of the ban. (laughs) <laughs> How do you start responding to that, Eustace? Uh, it's it's really a, a a crazy idea. So so I guess what we say is our public policy, particularly our policy as it relates to healthcare, should in encourage the flourishing of the human being. Yes. And this clearly does not. It's an economic calculation. Right. And so somebody's got to think about those poor little vape shops. Just right. Exactly. To stay <laughs> exactly. Here, exactly. Right. 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 I, you know, and my heart bleeds for them. But but it, it is tell, telling that in the last week, um, the very conservative Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, um, expressed his desire to ban flavored um, vape. Ah. Uh, in the state of Ohio, and and that follows behind other states um, that are much more regulated. But he he saw no other way as as a um, small government conservative to uh, stem the tide of young people who are using these products at an alarming rate. Well, and well, and you know yeah. and 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 when we think about it, we say, well, what's the big deal? So we have you know the data of a thousand uh, vaping related illnesses. Yeah, tell us what are these illnesses? Thirteen. Um, Related deaths. the 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 best way to describe it is is what was described in the October second issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. And this is this is, I think, a very important paper because it's the first hard data where they recovered specimens, actual biopsies of the human lung of people who suffered from vaping related illness. Oh. And uh, the Mayo Clinic um, in Scottsdale has world-renowned pathologists who look at lung tissue all day long. And, and basically the description they describe in these 17 specimens, basically every sort of lung pathology that you can see. And there, there are illnesses uh, such as diffuse alveolar damage um, and uh, some described as bronchiolitis, uh, some organizing pneumonia. Uh, and they are very... Um, similar to what we see to chemical burns of the lung. Chemical burns. So how about how would someone get a chemical burn of the lung? Well, most of these are industrial accidents. Okay. They, you know, factory-related injuries. But but this is this is a a solid piece of evidence of actual structural change in the lung, and and that's not been published before. And that's that's kind of a big deal. It should be noted that that again. Although the majority of these were related to um, cannabinoid uh, vaping, that we, it was not exclusively so. Well, so, and that's a that's a big change from what everybody would think that this is a, a safer alternative. Mm-hmm. It might even be completely safe. But now we've got some hard evidence to show that no lungs are really getting damaged from this. Now, some people might say, "Well, there's millions of people vaping. This is only a few patients. Why should I worry?" Right. I think that that is a point that might be raised 
but there are no predictors as to who this is going to happen to. So even if it's extraordinarily rare, if you're the one person it happens to, it's 100% for you. Right. And insofar as we are trying to be responsible with our health, anything that we can eliminate or um, discourage the use of new initiation of that may cost life. Now, were these people um, who suffered from this, people who had been using it for years, people who were older? I suspect uh, that they were people who were younger and not using it for years. The average age of these specimens were uh, 35-year-old patients. Okay. Um, And the prior smoking history was was unclear um, on most of them. So whether whether they were using it as, you know, the rationale for using it, whether they were new users or whether they were people who were trying to stop smoking is not clear. So uh, back to our letter to the editor writer in our local newspaper, he says, uh, and he says he works in the tobacco and vaping industry. He says there are only, you know, he said seven deaths. There are more in a nation of over 300 million with millions of smokers. This is insignificant. And it doesn't deserve a public uproar, especially since cigarettes have caused over 500,000 deaths a year. But we haven't done anything to ban them. How do you respond to that? Well, I think the reason we haven't banned cigarettes in the conventional sense is because they are so culturally tied. And there are so many – we don't have a good alternative um, to banning them. You know, restriction of use, restriction of age, um, these are these are sideways bans on okay. tobacco smoke. And, and what we've seen is that they've generally been effective. The number of new smokers and the number of people who are actively smoking has gone down. So when you increase the age from like 18 to 21. Right. So so those kinds of things have, have sort of been effective. So And there's the, something about the brain chemistry even putting off the first exposure to nicotine, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Now, um, the argument that, well, there are way more deaths with product A versus product B is is not a compelling argument to me because um, we are talking about the loss of human life under any circumstances. So whether or not it there is an economic footprint to um, discouraging the use or banning is not clear. Also, we don't know what the long-term impact is going to be, especially as we see the uh, the exponential rise in the number of uh, young people vaping. Uh, we talked about the number, you know, the number of twelfth graders going from nine percent to one in four over the course of three years. Um, that number may get bigger. And if you had the opportunity to get in a time machine and stem the tide of tobacco abuse via cigarettes, you probably would have done it. You know, gone back to the Virginia plantations in the 1600s and and done something about it. But you didn't know the science wasn't there. Here we have clear scientific evidence that vaping harms the lung tissue, that it leads to death in certain situations, leads to uh, illness that requires hospitalization. We know that it is not, according to present data, an effective tool for stopping smoking, and it feeds an addiction that is not normally there. So in the new user, it creates an addiction that they didn't have. So there's really no benefit to the new user except the occasional kind of high or euphoria they get from it. Right, exactly, exactly. Have you seen any patients with problems from vaping? I have, I have. And they seem to understand right away that this is what I did. Um, So they say, well, I just started vaping this, and then I had a flare-up of my asthma. So I, I've seen patients like that. Sometimes they use other excuses, like they say, oh, well, it was just the mango flavor. <laughs> if I go to raspberry, maybe it won't be so bad. <laughs> I, see, um, I see young people who are giving it to their parents and grandparents to help them try to stop smoking. So I had a conversation with an 86-year-old patient who just started vaping. Because she was smoking two to three cigarettes a day. And two to her, three. Two to three. And her Not grand, packs. No, cigarettes. And oh, her, her no. grandchildren thought she'd stop smoking if she started vaping. So they, they got her a jewel. Oh, no. And, and so... So, so grandma's it, using a lot more nicotine than before. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of this... It's a weird dynamic. And, um, and so everybody knows that traditional cigarettes are horrible for you. And then you have this, this uh, sort of... 
uh, false dichotomy where you have to choose either that or um, or Juul or some other form of vaping. And it, it, both of them are harmful and both of them um, I discourage my patients from using. I, I, this is a comment I just could not resist in a, a Catholic-themed show. That, that letter to the editor-writer Letter to the editor writer ends by saying, quote, I want Big Brother to stop attempting to decide my life choices for me concerning my personal interests and desires. We are all racing toward death. It is a personal decision as to how and at what pace we travel. <laughs> how do you respond to that? Wow. Well, <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> because there, there's a sentiment there that that is uh, distinctly American and yeah, is very, very libertarian. Very libertarian um, and you can imagine this individual going out and, and taming the West yes. back, in the day, back in the day. But, but at the same time, um, as Catholics, we are in a different place. We are not driven solely by... Uh, autonomy. We are not solely driven by this idea of um, of personal individual liberty being the sole determinant of our behavior. So we also have a a, a deep moral obligation uh, to be good stewards of our body, and and we talk about public policy uh, being designed to promote human flourishing. Well, you know. This is a good example of that, where where the government may in fact have have a role in preserving the health and safety of the individuals that reside in it. So, um, the uh, this is not a "don't tread on me" uh, <laughs> moment. Really, I, I see it as a as a do something that will help preserve your body, keep you healthy, well, be yeah. you know, be who God intended you to be, um, not end up in the hospital, not end up losing life. Especially uh, for adolescents where right. I, I see so many folks that tell me they wish that somebody would have stopped them, that they never would have started this, right. but now they're hooked. Right. So many folks, when they start using nicotine, don't really know what they're getting into, but then they're in for a lifetime of this battle. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's important to note that we don't know that if somebody stops vaping, that the lung heals. Wow. We know that the lung heals poorly. It doesn't heal as well as skin. We know that. We know that it doesn't heal as well as heart muscle. It organizes in funny ways, and some of it's going to be functional, some of it's going to be less functional, some of it's going to be scar. Um, so uh, they have to walk around, these young people have to walk around with these lungs for another 50, 60, 70 years, and that damage they uh, have may continue on. Eustace, as we're coming to a close on this interview, I wanted to, to know, we're dancing around the idea of nicotine versus traditional cigarettes. If somebody wants to quit smoking or if somebody wants to learn more about vaping to help help a friend or a family member, where can they go or what would you recommend? So the most accessible website, I believe, is the American Lung Association, which is very, very simple, lung.org. Very okay. good. Eustace Fernandez, thank you so much for being a guest today on Dr. Doctor. I think many of our listeners are going to greatly benefit from your wisdom. My pleasure. Looking forward to a three-peat. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the long-awaited trivia question. Tom? Yes. In November 1492, not 1942, Rodrigo de Jerez did something in Cuba no other European had ever done. What did he do that impacted health for over 500 years? I think it has to do with smoking. I think it does. He was the first European to ever witness smoking. He saw some natives on the island of Cuba rolling up uh, tobacco between legs and inhaling it out one end while it burned on the other end. And he brought it back with him to Spain when he exhibited it to his friends and they saw smoke rising around him. The Spanish Inquisition nailed him, said he was <laughs> doing something <laughs> sinful and infernal, and he was jailed for seven years. But when he came out seven years later, smoking had already caught on around him. you got to think, if you've never seen somebody blowing out smoke, yeah, that would, that would spook you a little bit. That, that would spook me <laughs> just a little bit. So thank you, no thank you, Rodrigo. Poor guy didn't know what he was doing. And in fact, it's so funny because the Indians gave Columbus's men so many gifts, and among the gifts were these dried tobacco leaves. Right, like, and what is this? This they money? They smelled horrible. They tasted bad, so they were throwing them overboard. 
And then they realized, wait, they valued them for some reason. They were using it like money, like you said. That is incredible. So what was your biggest takeaway from Eustace, Andrew? You know, the the biggest thing is that I think there's still more to come, but the, the stuff we know for certain is that it's bad for you and we've got to discourage it. And even, even when people are thinking of switching to it from traditional cigarettes, we've got to really push for full abstinence um, because we're not even sure that switching to a, an e-cigarette is going to be that much more helpful. We know that it does some damage. It might even be worse. Who knows? Right. And the flavors certainly look to be a way that is attracting the young people into something that they really don't get any benefit from. Yeah. Very scary. Oh, sadly, follow the money. And it's it's more surprising. We know that the effects of tobacco are, are pretty regular based on how much you've used, whereas they seem to be what we would call in medicine idiosyncratic effects with the vaping, which means that it could affect anyone at any time. Well, and the trouble is, too, I mean, the whole vaping trend's only been there for 10 years. I mean, as a physician, I'm always suspicious of new medicines until there's a track record. You know, this is a new thing people are doing. We're not going to know the damage for another decade or two. So the idea that people are going to roll the dice with their lives is probably not a, a very good decision. Well, we are very thankful to you, our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, and they can listen to back episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for a really good show for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing anxiety and with our repeat guest, Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Kevin Majors. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.